guess we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, a few minutes late here due to some the technical difficulties. But, but I gave us an extra hour. That's right. to account for Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so uh, what, uh, what I have first here is I guess you could call it right the syllabus. And um, we have eight weeks. I've only planned six topics. Um, hoping that we might be able to get through all six and eight weeks. Um, and as we walk through the various topics, the first one that we're going to talk about is biblical interpretation. Then uh, next time it will be defining faith, uh, a little bit of, of what faith is, uh, how the Bible defines it, uh, and then biblical leadership. We're going to talk about that. Um, then the, the spirit realm, and uh, we'll talk about that on Halloween which I think will be appropriate for anyone that's willing to, to uh, be here on Halloween for that um, and, and understand some of the implications of that particular holiday. Um, and then biblical decision-making on November 7th, spiritual progression and regression, the idea of growth and then carnality on the 14th. And then um, the last two weeks, the 28th and the 5th, will be for overflow. So I would actually not anticipate we get through everything this week, so that's going to roll over a little bit till next week bump things back so there'll be some overflow and then if we do have some extra time uh, uh, you know we'll see um, then there will be time for questions uh, outside of the normal questions that we'll feel throughout so of course as this rolls you you know how I teach I get rolling and I get moving if you have a question though just stop me ask the question don't feel bad about doing that whether it's clarifying a point or whether it's something um, we might say slightly off topic however uh, related uh, and then I'll decide if it's a little bit too off topic, maybe we'll try to bump it to another time, or, or I can talk to you personally. If it's um, related enough, then we'll pursue it um, as a part of the, the course itself. Uh, I also give you, as I always do, my contact information there, uh, my name, my phone number, and that's my cell phone, and then uh, my email address. You also have uh, another email address to Greg. That's, that one, of course, is fine as well. And then starting with the last class, um, we were, uh, I, I put this class on podcast. So you can subscribe to it on your phone and listen to the podcast later. That will be happening again. And then uh, there's the YouTube page there, um, or, or the, the page where the YouTube links will be posted. You can't just go to YouTube and go to a, a page, but if you go to that web page, uh, first off, the audio will be there. Second. Um, the video will be there as well, a link to YouTube, but it's going to be a private link on YouTube. So you can't find it unless you use the direct link on that page. So um, all of that is there for you so that you can reference the classes later if something is helpful or if you need to go over something again or whatever the case may be, um, you can reference those at any time. And those stay up. Uh, they're hosted with our, our uh, church website, so those will stay up indefinitely, and you can consult those at any time. Feel free to share them as well with anyone that you'd like to share them with. Um, they're, they're not publicly available, as it were, but they are certainly there to be used and to be shared. So that, that's the plan as far as the class is concerned. Those six topics is what we're going to attempt to walk through. Great question, Yes, sir. No, uh, I would next next Wednesday I got you guys. I had to be on the podcast. Yes, yeah, so each one will be there, so you can keep up or catch up. Um, we, we we try to I try to design them to be self-contained so that each 
week is something, and then the next week, if you miss it, you're missing a topic, but you're not missing like a continued teaching. Uh, very different from the, the first class, which is just one continuous thing. But um, there is some rollover typically, so that's where those will particularly come in handy. Yes, they'll be up, and I try to have them up by the end of the week. Just depends on how busy my schedule is with church stuff and everything. But they will get up, you know, eventually, and, and Lord willing, before the next class. Okay, so uh, I, I've given you, th this is actually the packet just for this first lesson here, um, which does not bode well. But um, what I'd like to do is, from the original class, when, when Greg sent this email originally, um, he always sends that email for, for what, we, what we call the 101 class, the introduction class, uh, with a, a set of four um, foundational assumptions that we make about the Bible. And we walk through those foundational assumptions just briefly and then say that as long as you're willing to either agree with or at least tolerate that these are the foundational assumptions of the class, then you're, you're going to be able to understand where we're coming from. Not everyone in Christian circles comes at the Bible from these foundational assumptions. And if you don't, then you're going to come to very different conclusions about what the Bible is saying. And so what I thought we would do first off in, in this uh, class is... I would, instead of just leaving those as foundational assumptions, I'll try to go back a little bit and defend a little bit of why it is that I make these foundational assumptions and why it is uh, I believe what I believe about them, which, which directly correlates to why I teach the way I do and, and, and why we, we interpret the Bible the way we do. Uh, as, as Greg and I put these classes together, we could sum up the way we, we read the Bible as you read it plainly, you, you take it at face value, and then you believe it. If the Bible says it, you believe it. If it's in the book, it doesn't mean that, that you're always going to obey it, but, but at least you need to know that it's in the book. And if you're not obeying it, you need to know that it's because you're not willing to obey the book. Um, and the, the four foundational assumptions are, are on this first page here, page one of our notes. And the first one is that the Bible is a deliberate book. The Bible is a deliberate book. So when we say that, what we say is that God intends to communicate with man, so we're going to interpret the Bible as if God wants us to understand it. We're going to take it literally. We're going to assume that God desired to communicate. We're not going to assume that we have to read between the lines. We're going to assume that what God put on the lines is what he wants us to understand. Uh, like any other form of communication, if you want to communicate clearly, you need to use the norms of language, you need to communicate in a way that you expect the other person to understand. If I don't do that, if I communicate in a way that I, I assume or, or know that the other person is not going to understand, I may have any ulterior motive to do that. I may be trying to deceive them, I may be trying to, to um, back them into a corner, I may be trying to... Uh, um, somehow cheat them, but one thing is for sure, I'm not actually trying to communicate with them, right? So we're going to assume that God wants to communicate with us, and if we're going to assume God wants to communicate with us, then we're going to assume that God is speaking and then having things written in a way that is clear, or at least that we can appertain. The, the second point that we set down is that the Bible is a unified book, that the Bible is a unified book. And the idea, and this is what we really walked through in our 101 course, that the Bible has a, a message that is consistent from beginning to end. 
God had the whole thing written, and it tells one unified message. It begins with God creating a perfect environment, mankind introducing sin into that environment, everything going bad because of sin, sin existing for several thousand years until such time as God decides to make it right. He begins that with Jesus. He begins that by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to raise again, and in doing so, effectively uh, sounds the death warrant of death and of sin. And then now we're living in the age after Jesus, but before Jesus comes and finishes the job, which we read about in a lot of the prophets, we read about in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus returns the second time to finish the job, to bring in justice and righteousness as he has promised to do, so that at the end of everything, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and this new heaven and this new earth will be again sinless, but this time it will be a, an earth that is populated by not just those that God has created, but by those whom having God having created them have then chosen God, loved God back, and so everyone there will be one who has accepted, has accepted God for, for who he is and for what he is and has accepted his authority. The third point that we uh, made in our, in our foundational assumptions is that the Bible is an accurate book. That's your third point there. The Bible is an accurate book. That God gave man something that we can trust, and so we're going to assume that what the Bible says is true. And any problem with the Bible as we would perceive it is a problem with our understanding. It's not a problem with the Bible itself. And we're still going to leave some of this stuff unsaid as far as why we we can have confidence in the Bible's accuracy. Uh, and that comes to what the doctrines that we call the doctrines of inspiration and preservation. We're not going to talk about them today. Um, we are still going to leave that as an assumption that the Bible is an accurate book. And then the third and final point there is that the Bible is a spiritual book. The Bible is a spiritual book that God reveals himself only to those who are willing to receive and if you haven't received the gospel, you won't truly understand the Bible because the Bible requires the Spirit of God to be a part of teaching us and interpreting it for us, uh, that, that it is not just something that any man can read the book and understand what the words say, and, and anyone can read the book and glean its general meaning, but the spiritual understanding, the spiritual concepts that undergird the book can only truly be understood by those who are taught by the Spirit of God himself, and those are they who have the Spirit of God indwelling by grace through faith, having accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So the, the question that, that I want to start with, that you see there on the bottom of this page, why does it matter? Why does the way that we interpret the Bible matter? Can't we just interpret it anyway? And you perhaps have seen this before, where uh, you've been in a Bible study perhaps, and everyone has opened the Bible and you've read a verse, and then they all look up and they say, so what does that mean to you? And so everybody is saying something different, and, 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 and the question is really, that's, a, that's kind of a bad question. Now there's a point where, where we can get there, but the first and most foundational question is, what did God mean when he had it written? That's a far more important question than what does it mean to me? And so the first reason why it matters there uh, that you have at the bottom of this first page is that interpretation determines doctrine. Interpretation determines doctrine. That word doctrine simply means teaching or the teachings of the Bible. So the way that we understand 
the teachings of the Bible will be based upon the way that we interpret the Bible. So you perhaps have noticed that among, uh, among various churches, um, there are pretty big differences in how people interpret the Bible. There are pretty large differences, very dramatic differences, uh, that, that in regard to how people, the, the role that they believe the Bible plays, uh, the, the role that they have among, uh, within the church as far as their clergy and the structure of their clergy. Um, you've got uh, churches like mine where we believe in the office of the pastor and the office of the deacon. You have churches that have elders. You have churches that have priests and bishops. And, 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 and where, where are all these differences coming from? You have um, churches that um, uh, would, would say no women pastors. You have churches that have women pastors. You have churches that would say divorce is wrong. You have churches that say uh, um, that, that, that divorce is acceptable. And so we have these tremendous disparities. And um, some of these disparities can come down to people simply not believing the Bible. But others of these come down to the way that people interpret the Bible. So interpretation determines doctrine. There are major themes. Major theological differences. We, we've, we've talked in our 101 class about creation and evolution. And we've talked about some of that disparity. Well, there's a, a lot of, of people who claim to believe the Bible who also believe in, in the scientific theories of evolution, though they are rather contradictory. At least Darwinian evolution is quite contradictory to the way that the Bible presents the account of creation. Uh, is Jesus God? That's a big question among uh, certain groups. Uh, was Jesus born of a virgin? Uh, how, how am I saved? How is a person saved? Is it uh, grace, by grace through faith? Is it faith plus works? Um, do I have to be attached to a certain group? Do I, is it okay if I'm not? Uh, can we lose our salvation? Uh, the nature of baptism. What is the function of baptism? How, how, how does baptism work? Uh, um, there are those that sprinkle. There are those that immerse. There are those that do it as infants. There are those that do it uh, after a profession of faith. All of these come down to how I interpret the Bible. And so it does matter because it really does form the basis for why there's so many differences among the denominations. So first, interpretation determines doctrine. On page two there at the top, interpretation guides our way of thinking. Interpretation guides our way of thinking. We also call this our worldview. So um, we are in the midst of a time in our country where, the, where we, we see a, a fundamental contradiction among people as it relates to their worldview. How is it that there can be a progressive left and a conservative right who can see the same stuff happening on the world stage, economically, um, uh, environmentally, um, politically, and, and yet they can come to such incredibly different conclusions? How is that possible? And this really comes down to the, the nature of a worldview. Uh, how it is that I see the world? What is the lens through which I see the world? Uh, people try, try to talk about their unbiased opinion. Well, there's really no such thing, right? Everybody has an angle through which they see the world, and that angle is going to color how they see it. I, I, I tend to uh, regard it as a pair of glasses, that we all see the world through a pair of glasses, 
through a pair of lenses, and those lenses will, will dictate the nature of how we see things. Now, if we're all being honest, even if we see things slightly differently, we are going to be able to come to at least general consensus. But then if we are not being honest, right, if we're being dishonest, then it's going to taint things. Hello? All right, Tom, can you hear us? Yeah. Okay, all right, sorry I forgot about you. That's okay, I'm used to it. <laughs> hey, Tom. Okay. So, so, so the, the lenses through which I see the world are going to make a difference as to how I operate in that world. The, the gun debate, global warming, the refugee crisis, economics, uh, as it relates to morality, the, the, the view of race, the views on abortions, the views on uh, homosexuality and transgenderism, these are all, they all come down to the way of thinking that I have, the, the, the worldview that I'm espousing. Now, there are plenty of conservatives that don't believe the Bible, and they build their worldview on some other notion than the biblical notions. There's plenty of progressives who say they believe the Bible, and yet, once again, they're building their worldview on ideologies. We have unapologetically throughout these classes said that we're building our way of thinking upon the Bible. So we treat the Bible like a filter. That whatever the political, whatever the moral, whatever the socio-economic or cultural thing that we're looking at, we filter it through the Bible, and if it doesn't come out clean on the other side, then we know how to think about it because we've filtered it through God's Word, and God's Word tells us what is what we believe, what is right, and what is wrong. In other words, um, God's Word is the user manual. And you can have 10 people trying to run one product, and they all have their idea about how that product is supposed to be run, but the person that has the open user manual and says, no, we ought to hit that button, because that's what the user manual says we should hit, is the one that we would say is correct. He's correct because he has the user manual. We believe this is the user manual. And so we filter everything through this because we believe that it is correct. So interpretation, first, uh, as we said, it um, determines doctrine. It determines uh, what we believe about the teachings of the Bible. Second, interpretation guides our way of thinking. And, and it doesn't just guide the way that we think about things. It also guides how we treat uh, others. This is not point three yet. Yeah, we're still on point two. Uh, but it, it guides how we interact with others uh, within the world also. The third point here. Interpretation dictates our actions and our inactions. How we interpret the Bible will, will change the way that we act if we believe the Bible to be true. It's going to change what I do say, what I don't say. It's going to change how you respond to your boss. It's going to change how you treat your wife. It's going to change how you treat your children. It's going to change what you watch on television or on the internet. It's going to change everything. Because it's going to be the, 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 the point, the, the thing that dictates your actions. So let me give you a couple examples here of... Where, how, how this might play out a little bit as it relates to, and, and, and if you want to write down the references, you can write them down underneath the point. I gave you some room there, obviously, to write. Um, in Acts chapter 22, excuse me, Acts chapter 2, not 22, in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 46, the Bible says this. This is about the early church. The Bible says, 
And all that believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So we see an instance here where, where, where these believers, having all things in common and having had the Holy Spirit of God indwell them, now sold all of their possessions and, and, and parted them one to another as every man had need. One of the common claims uh, among certain a, uh, elements of Christianity, as well as among um, those who, who don't really know the Bible well but, but still try to read it, is that, that, that the Bible espouses socialism or communism as the best method. And they point to passages like this, where the believers sold all of their possessions and then they distributed them as people had need to those that had the need. So does that mean, we ask the question, does that mean that the Bible espouses socialism? Well, it depends on how you interpret that passage. If you interpret that passage as they had an, a, a, a biblical obligation to sell everything that they had and to, to distribute equally, well then, yes, but that's not what the passage says. The passage says they all had their own possessions and they each willingly chose to sell the possessions that they that, that they had in order to meet the needs of those that had needs. And so if we interpret it from another lens, well, no, it's not teaching communism. It's teaching charity. It's teaching a, a brotherly kindness one toward another of the possessions which we have. Uh, Philippians chapter 4.13, this is a big one. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Can I do anything through Christ? Is that is that what that is attempting to say? Uh, Tim Tebow used to wear the eye patches with Philippians 4.13 on them. Uh, Steph Curry's shoes say Philippians 4.13, or at least they did at one time say Philippians 4.13, right? Uh, and and uh, all, all it said is I can do all things, dot, 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 on the shoe, I think. Um, but that was that was Steph Curry's thing, that, that he wanted Philippians 4.13 on the shoe. Uh, is it appropriate for us to say that Philippians 4.13 is really saying that Steph Curry can score a lot of baskets through Jesus. That Tim Tebow could presumably throw a lot of touchdowns or run a lot of touchdowns in through Jesus. Is that really what, what Philippians 4.13 is attempting to tell us? Or is there something else there in the context that is actually going to redirect that statement towards something different? So th these are where the rubber meets the road, right? This is where I actually see Philippians 4.13 out there as a statement of empowerment unto storing a lot of baskets. And then the question becomes, is that really what the Bible is saying? Is that really what God meant when he had written by Paul, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me? And if you read the passage, you'll find that's not at all what it means. As a matter of fact, what Paul was actually saying there is that he has done a lot, he's suffered a lot. And there have been times where things have been good and there have been times that there, there, things have been bad. But he's learned that whether things are good, whether things are bad, whether he, he has all that he needs or whether he's really suffering and lacking in what he needs, that he can still be content in, in all of it. Because he can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth him. It's actually a mark of his suffering. And that in, even in the times of suffering, he can still be what God wants him to be. He can still have a right heart. He can still be content and joyful even when he doesn't have a meal that night. Even when he doesn't have enough money to, 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 to live. 
he can still be content through Christ. That's actually what he was saying there. Uh, in, in um, skip that one for now. We'll, we'll, we'll skip a few of these examples. Um, the, the the biggest one, perhaps, that you might run across is Matthew chapter seven, verse one. Judge not that you be not judged. Right? This is one that gets thrown out there an awful lot. It's thrown out there by a lot of people that really don't know what they're talking about. Judge not that you be not judged. Matthew chapter seven, verse one. Am I not allowed to judge anyone under any circumstance? Is that what that verse means? In fact, that's not what that verse means. Uh, that verse is a warning against the manner in which I judge, the people that I might choose to judge. But it does not mean, and it certainly does not mean that I can't say that something is sin that is sin. There's a big difference between saying something is sin and then judging someone for that sin, right? So these are all examples of passages of Scripture that are, are interpreted or misinterpreted, misused, and if we don't understand why we interpret the Bible the way we do, if we don't have an appreciation for the fact that there is a right way and a wrong way to interpret the Bible, well, then we're in a lot of trouble, right? If there's no right way and if there's no wrong way, if it doesn't matter, then it's just as, as easy for any other ideology to justify anything through the Bible. But if there's one right way to interpret the Bible, if there is a manner that we actually ought to, to, to pursue as we're reading the Bible to understand what God wants us to understand, well, then that changes everything. Then now I am accountable for what the Bible says, and I'm accountable for the way God wants it to be said, not for the way I think it should be said. In other words, if, if uh, when, when, when we all die and we all end up before the throne, is it going to be a valid excuse? Why uh, you stand before God and and, and you uh, there? Let's say people who have, who have not believed on Christ to be saved. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me." So you have the Muslim, you have the Buddhist, you have the Hindu, and they stand before God and they say, "Well." Um, that may have been what you meant, God, but that's not how I interpreted it. That's not what I read when I read the Bible. And so God says, oh, okay, then. Well, if that's not how you interpreted it, then I'll just let you in. Well, if, if, if that's what God's going to do, then there's no standard, and then we're all wasting our time here. But if there is a standard, then we need to know how to come to that standard. And so it matters. So let's talk about the nature of truth. Page three at the top of the page there. The nature of truth. Before I roll into this next point, is there any questions or thoughts on that? Okay. The nature of truth. So one of the primary contexts of disagreement over Bible interpretation is the perspective of the reader as it relates to truth and divine revelation. So in John 18, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And he is being falsely accused of all manner of things. They said that he was threatening to destroy the temple, even though Jesus was clearly speaking metaphorically uh, and of his body when he said that. Uh, they said that he wanted to overthrow Rome, even though Jesus explicitly said that he, his kingdom was not of this world. And, and, and so he's being falsely accused. And Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus' response in John 18 was this, thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, 
that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And the Bible says in verse 38 of John 18, Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again and told the Jews and said, I can find no fault in this man. So Pilate asked this question, and it was a question that was very philosophical, a question that was bouncing around in the Roman Empire as it had been in the Greek Empire before it, and as it still does today, which is this question, what is truth? Is there such thing as truth? And this is where we're coming down again. There's a real rubber meets the road here as it relates to the, the circumstances of our day, right? Because today, one of the big things that has been, been espoused, Oprah did a big thing on this a little while ago, is speaking your truth. You have to speak your truth. What does that mean? What, what, what is your truth? My truth. So we have this, this, this um, distinction that I need to make here. And this is your next point here. Subjective truth versus objective truth. Subjective truth versus objective truth. And we need to kind of, uh, we need to, to, to set two boxes in our mind here when people are talking about truth. Now, this is not how people think of truth today. We are in what's called a postmodern society. We are in a post-truth society. We are in a society and culture that believes that you make up truth for yourself, that truth is what you say it is, that you actually formulate truth through your life and by your manner of living, that becomes truth. So that truth is what you say it is, and this is why people get, this is why uh, offense is considered hate speech today. Why you can't offend anyone, because if you offend anyone, then you are violating their truth. And if you're violating their truth, then they actually perceive you as violating the truth. Therefore, you are violating that something that is, in their mind, objective, though it only applies to them which creates an impossible standard. And, and this is the, the, the downward spiral of culture as culture divorces itself from the idea of real truth. So as we talk about subjective truth or subjective truths and objective truth, subjective truth, subjective truths are essentially, here's your next fill in, opinions. Subjective truths are essentially opinions rooted in perceptions and experiences and emotions, and they're entirely subject to interpretation. So you and I, um, so we're all sitting here, and we eat dinner, and one guy says, please, one guy says, wow, that was really, really good. And another guy maybe doesn't like Mexican, and, and he says, no, it wasn't. Well, who's, who's, who's right? Who's speaking truth? Each one is speaking their own truth, right? One man says broccoli is delicious. The other man says broccoli is disgusting. And as you have these two parts, the first man lied. Yeah. So, so that, that that's that's a bad example of the subjective truth, right? Uh, so, but but this is the point, right? One man likes roller coasters. Another man says roller coasters are terrible. And so we have these situations where there are things that 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 one man says broccoli is disgusting, and other people may say that's truth. Right? That is truth. But it's not everyone's truth. And that's okay. That's called an opinion. Right? That's actually called an opinion. It's not truth at all, except to the extent that you believe it's true, which is an opinion. It is based upon your perceptions, your experiences, and your emotions. And these are all really bad things to base truth on. 
because we are all emotions are flighty, uh, experiences are flighty. I mean, we, we've dealt with this with the Supreme Court uh, pick over the last three weeks, right? Here you have a group of people that are saying, this woman is telling the truth because I feel bad for her. If that becomes the standard in this country, because I feel bad for this woman, because she had a very convincing testimony and I feel bad for whatever it is she went through, therefore this man must be guilty, even though there's no evidence, corroborating evidence toward it, that, that, then we are, in a, we are in a really dangerous place, right? Now, it's not to say that she did not have an experience. It's not to say Brett Kavanaugh was not the man that, that, that did it. But those are apart from what we, what we would call objective facts. We can't know it. But if we allow emotion, perception, or experience to dictate what we say is true or false, then we don't have a standard anymore. We are completely, we're all just waving in the wind. Whatever way the wind blows is the way we go, and that's mob rule. And, and, and that, that's a mess, right? That is an absolute mess. Objective truth is entirely different. When we talk about objective truth, we're talking about universal, unalterable, and here's your fill-in, universal, unalterable fact, which transcends opinion, perception, experience, and emotion. So two plus two equals four. Two plus two equals four. If I have two things here and I have two things there, I now have four things. That is a fact. It doesn't matter what language you're speaking. Two plus two equals four. The Earth is generally spherical, right? It's kind of being warped slightly by gravity and, and such, but, but it is a general sphere. That is a fact. And so we have these things that are facts, that are unalterable, that are universal, that no matter who I am, I can look at something with my eyes or I can... Uh, um, um, work out through my rationality something and it is true. So we're walking through the nature of truth here. There are such things that we could call subjective truths. Generally we call them opinions or we call them experiences or we call them emotions, but they do feel real to us. And then there are things that are objective. There are things that are true whether we like them or not. There are things that whether we're feeling good or we're feeling bad, it's just the way that it is. I don't have to like something in order for it to be true. And just because I dislike it doesn't make it true any longer, right? That leads us to, to two premises as we talk about the nature of Bible interpretation. Premise number one there uh, in, in your fill-in, objective truth exists. Objective truth exists. Exists, And this is the one that culture has lost. This premise has been completely lost. In a postmodern culture, people no longer believe that objective truth exists. That there is something that transcends us that is true. That there is a way that everything is structured. Not just physically, we're not just talking about physics. But we're talking about the way in which the world is intended to work. And as there is an erosion of objective truth, then there simply is no standard, and at that point, everything breaks down. So the first premise as we read the Bible, as it relates to truth, is that we believe that objective truth exists, that there are things that are true, and there are things that are false. We may not all agree on what those are, but we agree that they exist, which means we are all willing to seek for them. And then the second premise there, 
that we will submit, is your fill in there, we will submit ourselves to objective truth. And this is the second um, element that we, we impose upon our interpretation, is that if something is true, then I'm going to submit myself to it. I'm going to believe it. I'm not going to walk around saying two plus two is five if you can prove to me that two plus two is in fact four. I'm not going to stay in my little dream world or my emotional world or my perception world that says two plus two is five once I have, have once it has been settled and known that two plus two equals four. So that's the nature of truth and, and that's a beginning foundation to Bible interpretation. The second point that you have there, the larger point uh, toward the bottom of the page, the nature of truth was the first one. The second one, the nature of divine revelation. The nature of divine revelation. <clears throat> Underneath that, your next fill-in, God desires to reveal and communicate himself to his creation. God desires to reveal and to communicate himself to his creation. I'm going to give you some verses here. If you want to follow this up later, I would encourage you to write down the reference. It was up on the screen, but obviously uh, that's not working for us. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. I'm going to read it for you. The Bible says this. For this commandment, which I command thee this day, is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, meaning near, in thy mouth, and in thine heart that thou mayest do it. What, and Paul actually quotes these verses in, in the book of Romans. Uh, so, so though it's an Old Testament concept, it, it, it follows into the New Testament as well. And what, what God is saying there is, I am attempting to let you know who I am. You don't have to go on some great journey, some, some uh, journey to the, the highest peaks and ascend unto heaven. You don't have to become a 33rd degree uh, Christian in order to understand me. You don't have to, you don't have to, to uh, go across the sea on some great pilgrimage to find me. I want you to find me. I'm not hiding somewhere. There's these religions that, that, that imply that God is hidden, that we can't see him, that he, he uh, has to be found through through uh, years and years and years of study and, and, and years of devoting yourself to some secret knowledge. And then at the end of that, then it, it unlocks the ability for you to find God in some way, shape, or form. Well, the, the well of the, the character of God is deep. No one can plumb the depths of it. Yet I'll spend the rest of my life learning more about God. But the, the reason that I don't know him as well as I could, it's not because he hasn't revealed himself. It's not because he's trying to hide anything from me. It's because I'm human, because I'm sinful. It's because I'm thick-headed. It's because I'm selfish. It's because I'm proud. God hasn't artificially hindered me from knowing him. He hasn't hit the brakes and said, you, you, you can't know me anymore until you go talk to this guru or that guru or until you've been uh, reading the Bible for this many years. No. It's 
God saying, my word is near you. It is with you. You don't have to go to the peaks. You don't have to go to the highest hills. You don't have to ascend into heaven. It's here for you if you want it. God desires to reveal and to communicate himself to his creation. God wants you to know him. It doesn't always mean it's easy. But I think a lot of times we don't make it easy on ourselves. Well, pastor, I don't know him very well. Well, do you go to church? Pastor, I don't know him very well. How often do you read your Bible? Pastor, I don't know him very well. Well, well, do you pray? See, God has given us the means by which to know him better. But we often don't avail ourselves to those means for one reason or another. Some of them perhaps valid and legitimate. Other ones perhaps not so much. So God desires to reveal himself. This is another thing as it relates to divine revelation. When we interpret the Bible. Now, these are the foundational assumptions that, that, that we're making, that God wants to communicate, that God has revealed himself, that God desires for us to know him. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? We'll talk about that in just a moment with the second point. Uh, the, your next fill in there. The word of God is the primary of three methods of revelation of God to man. The word of God is the primary method of three methods of revelation of God to man. Sorry, that's not written really well. And those three methods are found on the next page. So the first of these three methods is creation. How has God revealed himself? Pastor, I don't see God all that often. How has God revealed himself? Well, the Bible says that God has revealed himself through creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 19.1. The Bible and it, the Bible says it again in Psalm 97, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness, and the people see his glory. So the Bible says that in creation we can find God. One of the uh, most amazing arguments that I always found as far as it related to Darwinian evolution is this goo to you idea that says that we are all an accident. The idea that we are all an accident, uh, Big Bang Theory and such, is, is so nonsensical. Who has ever seen such design come out of an accident? They, they don't create 747s by setting off a bomb in a Boeing factory, right? That's not how a 747 is assembled. You don't set off a bomb and then it boom and then boom, out comes a 747 with all of its incredible technology and design. No, where you see technology and design, what do you say? There is a designer. Where you see a beautiful painting, you don't say, wow, I wonder how that accidentally came into being. You say, wow, there is some extremely talented person who must have spent a good portion of his life training in order to produce something so beautiful, right? Where we see design, we see, we, 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 we recognize a designer. The idea that an explosion, the idea that a bunch of accidents over a great amount of time have created the kind of precision in that, that, we, well, that we find in the world around us is, is truly nonsensical. And even a lot of evolutionists uh, have trouble with this, which is where um, the intelligent design theory comes in. Those people that are not quite ready to give give uh, credit to the biblical God, but want to give credit to something, will oftentimes find themselves in intelligent design. Some of these people believe that that intelligent design is a God. 
Others believe that that intelligent design is some alien race, right? And that we're in some sort of incubator. And uh, this is, you know, then you get the multiverse theories that, that there's multiple universes and we're all playing out. And, right? But, but the, the big idea is, is, is kind of like if, if you ever saw Men in Black, Right, right at the end of Men in Black, they're all playing with those marbles, and those marbles are universes, and then those zoom out to the next set of marbles, and they're playing with those. And and, and there's always something bigger. There's always something more. There's some sort of uh, there, there's something that seeded life on this planet, and and then they are are watching it. And then perhaps at some point, if humanity reaches some sort of apex, or if we graduate to the next level, then they will reveal themselves to us that we've pass the test and that we can join the, the, the intergalactic community of, of, of whatever, or, or that we're just some big experiment. Um, a lot of people believe that we're actually a simulation. Uh, Elon Musk likes this one. He, he, he likes the idea, he's not ready to commit to it, but he likes the idea that we're actually just in some sort of major big computer simulation. Uh, and that we're all just running through this simulation of, of, of stimulus and response. We don't have free will, all of these things. But, but what does the Bible say? The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And how much more reasonable is it for us to believe that there is an almighty God who created all things than for us to believe some of the, the, the crazy things that are coming out today as people attempt to explain how we are here and how there is so much design and how there's so much order. The order that we find, I mean, how is it that there's so many constants? Gravity is such an incredible constant. If gravity worked according to the theory of evolution, then we might be standing here and we're all talking at, at, at being pulled to the ground by negative 9.8 meters per second squared of gravity, right? And, and as we're, we're doing this, uh, all of a sudden, all of the gravity is going to... Uh, 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 leave and we just start floating around or all of the oxygen in the room pockets itself in one corner because this is what would happen in a chaotic universe. Things would change. All of a sudden the oxygen would just go. Then it would come. Then gravity would stop. Then it would start. But we're not in a chaotic universe. We are in an, uh, a universe that is meticulously designed. We are on a planet that, that is so perfectly situated within our solar system. Not too close to the sun to burn us up. Not too far to freeze us out. We are in such a tremendous place. We are, we, 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 are, we are so perfectly situated. To say that it was an accident is a statistical and mathematical impossibility. So creation declares the reality of a God. Now again, does it tell you any, anything about that God? Well, it tells you he's orderly. It tells you he's creative. And you can't look at, you, uh, you guys were talking just before we started about uh, uh, going out west and seeing the beautiful sights, and it's like you see one, and then, you, and then the next one just one-ups it. Uh, you, there's so much variation in creation. There's so much beauty. Uh, I love, what, one of the things I love about being up here in Minnesota is how, how distinct the seasons are. I've lived here for seven years now, a little over seven years, and the seasons are just so distinct. The, the, the changing of the leaves in the fall, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's such a distinct change from summer. Winter is such a distinct change from fall. Spring is such a distinct change from winter. And, and even, even driving around in my area, you know, the, the, you're driving around and there's open fields and a few months later there's corn there. So you're not even seeing the same thing anymore. And then the corn's going to get cut down and then there's going to be open fields again. There's so much variation. There's so much creativity. Uh, there, there's so much precision. And, and, and this testifies of a creator. And it testifies a little bit of his character. It doesn't tell us much more about him. 
but it testifies of his might, of his power, of his order, of his creativity. Perhaps his sense of humor, when you look at some of the animals out there, right? Uh, maybe a little bit of that too. I think God's got a sense of humor when you see how, how some of these animals are put together. Thoughts or questions on that? What's that? Yeah, <laughs> well, right, absolutely. Well, and, and, and that's, you know, you, you take the next layer up, and, and, and uh, yeah, definitely, God has a sense of humor, and he has to. Um, Romans 1, verse 20 says, The invisible things of God, of him, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So the, the Romans chapter 1 says that not only do we know God in his general character, but we know his eternal power and his Godhead. We know that God is powerful and that he is in charge. In other words, if so, so everything that I create, generally speaking, I have power over. Perhaps I'm, I'm working for someone, so I create it for them, and they have power over it because of an arrangement I've made. But the idea is that the creator is the one who has power over his creation. If there is a creator God, well then everybody knows from the reality of creation that there is a God with eternal power and with authority, Godhead. So now we have this, this conundrum that all of us see that there is a God because of design and then we recognize that because there is a God that designed us that he has authority over us. And this is exactly where mankind begins to get uncomfortable, right? Because I want to be my own God. I don't want someone to be telling me what to do. I don't want to have to be beholden to someone else's ideas. And so this is where people immediately start to say, how can I change this God or erase this God because I don't want to be accountable to this God. I don't want to be accountable to anyone or I want to be accountable to something that I can control. So they make a God out of stone or out of wood or they turn the, uh, 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 gizmos, uh, money, Government into their God and then they are trying their best then to manipulate their God into what they want their God to be so that they can feel content at the same time while simultaneously uh, having some acknowledgement of a God. That's the first way that God reveals himself to everyone. He reveals himself through creation. The second is through the conscience. Uh, through the conscience. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 again, verses 18 and 19, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. The Bible says that, that we can know God, that it has been revealed to us that that. The righteousness of God and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven uh, uh, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, there is a moral standard that has been revealed to us that we all understand. So the, the question I, I sometimes will ask or might, maybe often will ask is, in our culture, we have this general code uh, from the Bible, love thy neighbor, right? The idea of, of loving, uh, helping, being kind to others, of a, of, a, of a general deportment. Well, there are other cultures where kill thy neighbor has been their manner of living. Uh, the Aka Indians down in South America uh, were this way. And many other cultures, many other pagan cultures, uh, when oh, we just had Columbus Day, and 
for all of the egregious things that Columbus did. He also did a lot of truly tremendous things. But one of the things that he did in, in, in uh, pacifying the indigenous populations, these were some pagan people that did some pretty horrible pagan things. It's a, uh, you, you, you go and you look at what the Aztecs and the Mayans did, fantastic cultures uh, in, in the sense of building and, the, and such, but they were also extremely brutal cultures, right? They were cultures, uh, I remember going uh, to, uh, I believe it was Chichen Itza in Mexico, and uh, seeing the, well, I think they called it the Well of Souls, and it was a place where they would sacrifice virgins, and they would kill them and then throw them into this well to the gods, and they would, you know, kill, kill uh, scores upon scores of people on their on their their uh, monuments, and then uh, toss them down the stairs, and all of this terrible stuff. Are we saying that 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 culture is just as valid and just as normal and just as good as any other culture? Are we saying that that the Western culture that was brought to this hemisphere uh, should that was on par with the culture that would sacrifice eighty thousand people to a god because they had a solar eclipse and they felt that the god was going to be angry at them? Are those cultures truly on par with one another? Or is there a cultural hierarchy here where we can say one culture is better than another? And what makes that culture better? Well, it's certainly not that nobody, that, that, that one culture uh, did not know what was right and wrong and one, one did. It's that one had submitted itself to the moral code that we all know. There is a difference. And it does matter. And... Murder is wrong in any culture. And personal property is understood in any culture until it's inculcated out of people through academia and selfishness. And so we have this general framework of morality. And the Bible says to that end that every man understands by the reality of, of morality, God's wrath and God's righteousness. That if there is a God, that he's created this, this code that we all understand and know. It's built into us, the Bible says in Romans 2, that the law of God is written on our hearts and that we, we fall short of it. So even without the Bible being in play, we can know that there is a God, that he is powerful, and that he is is just and that we offend his his code, his moral code. That's without even the Bible coming into play, <coughs> according to the Bible itself. Questions or thoughts on this? Or additions? Yes, sir. Just people forget. I don't know. It's love. Culture does this, culture does that. Is it right? This culture right? This right? If there's no love, culture, in my opinion, wrong. God said it's love. Everybody, in my, what I've seen, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people turn their face away from things. I've seen, well, one guy uh, spent most of his life in prison. He cries, he cries, has cried. Uh, nobody cares about him in prison. So for love. He has no empathy. I've seen him, you know, I see animals, you know, cattle and, and, and cattle trucks and so on say something about, you know, uh, absolutely no concern for them, no empathy. You know, there, there's times when I've seen him show it, but otherwise uh, pretty, pretty cold mm -hmm. and so on. But nobody cares about you in prison. 
mother to love, you know, he's turned himself the rest of you know, generally turned the rest of the way around. That's, oh. that's the way I see it. If they don't love, it comes out of what you do, if you, if, you know, how you treat other things, right? Sure. Well, and, and you give the example of love there, and it, and it comes to every one of the, the general moral guidelines that God gives. Uh, it is all well and good, right, if we want to continue to talk about some of the politics of the day or, or the cultural battles of the day. For these people to get up and to espouse that everybody needs to give their money to everyone else, but what happens when someone comes for their money? It's all well and good for people to protest against the wall at our southern border, it's ironic that a lot of these people have walls around their houses, right? So there is a disconnect between what people see and, and, and what people know. We all have these inherent moral qualities within us that recognize the need to be protected, that recognize uh, the concept of personal property, that recognize that certain things are wrong, that lying is wrong, that misrepresenting the truth is wrong. That, that, that murder is wrong, that, that taking something that doesn't belong to you is wrong. Now we can take those things out of us by being trained, indoctrinated, uh, by, by being twisted and confused, but I don't have to teach my little, my, my, my little children that if they're not supposed to have something, that to feel guilty if they take it. I, I didn't teach my child to take something and then go hide in a corner while they eat it because they know they shouldn't have it. That guilt is built into them. Who taught them that? Who, who taught them that? No one taught them that. It's just what is built into them. Children understand justice. Children understand guilt. Children understand right and wrong. Children understand what it is to lie. Children understand these things. And wh where does that come from? Well, it's built into them. They may not always... <clears throat> obey it, right, because they're selfish, but it's there without us having to teach it because it's built in by God. That's our conscience. The final one here is scripture. This is the third and the um, absolute highest form of God's revelation. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, it's teaching for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the Bible is the third method of revelation. Once again, as we look at these tiers, what were we trying to set down here? Why this matters? Does it matter? Well, if God has communicated himself, and if God desires to communicate himself, and he's given us these things that can give us a general idea of him, creation, conscience, and he's made these things in such a way that he wants us to understand him, which is what the Bible says. You know, I, I marvel at people that, that, that atheists and whatnot that say, well, if God is real, why did he go to such lengths to hide himself from us? Have you ever felt guilty, right? Have you ever admired a spider's web? Uh, he hasn't gone out of his way to hide himself from us, but he's gone further than that. From the word of God, the Bible says that he has thus given us a book to tell us about himself. So God desires to reveal and communicate himself to his creation. The word of God is the primary of three methods of revelation of God to man. The next point there uh, on page four, the next fill-in, the word of God is 
is objective truth. This is the next point. This is where we go. Just as it's objective truth that there is a designer where we see design, just as it is objective truth that there is something built into mankind that predisposes him to certain moral values, whether he listens to those or whether he doesn't, whether he agrees with them or whether he doesn't, there are certain things that are built into mankind about justice, about uh, uh, equity, about mercy, about love, about um, truth. These things are built in. In the same way, this third element of revelation is also truth. It is objective truth. Christ claimed to be the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Christ claimed the word of God to be truth. He said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The scriptures testify of themselves to be truth. Psalm 119, 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So God's word is objective truth. Your final fill-in on this page. God's word must be approached as an exercise of discovery not an exercise of creation. As an exercise of discovery, not an exercise of creation. In other words, I am not reading the Bible and forming my own truths from it. I, the, the, I don't read a user manual and then from that user manual say, well, I'm going to open up this user manual and then I am going to formulate some idea of how I think that this this device ought to be run from the user manual. No, I'm going to open the manual and, it's, and I'm going to discover how to use the device, right? It's already been written down how to use it. I'm not here to create the template of how to use the device. I'm here to, to read how to use the device and to submit myself to it. And this is the logic that brings us to this presupposition that the Word of God is accurate, that God desires to communicate, and thus I'm going to submit myself to it. We walk through this process of trying to understand that. Any questions on that? There's a, a really great quote here. I'm not the biggest fan of Soren Kierkegaard. He was a, uh, a Christian philosopher. Uh, a lot of people in various circles really like him. I'm, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of his, of his teachings and, and of his own interpretations of certain things. But I love this quote from him on the top of page 5. He says, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. I love this quote. Because Soren Kierkegaard is making a really important and um, 
and a true point that the reason why people have all of these other methods of interpretation whereby we don't take things literally and uh, we, we, we twist things or we read into things or we, we, we this number and this number and this number and we put these numbers together and it means something different. The reason why everybody likes to play all of these games with the Bible is because it keeps them distracted from actually having to believe what the Bible says. I tell people, there's an awful lot of words on the pages. We don't have to be spending our time reading between the lines. We have a hard enough time obeying what's on the lines. And this is something that we all will, will be found guilty of at some point. Some of us perhaps more than others. That we take the Bible and we look at the Bible, but we refuse to take it at face value because that would mean some changes in our lives. It would mean some changes in our lives if I took love your enemy, pray for them, which despitefully use you, bless them, that curse you. It would take some changes in my life if I take that, that at face value. So let me just twist it a little bit. Let me just change what Jesus said there to try to qualify it a little bit. All right? Just so, so that I can feel good about the fact that I still hate my enemies, but I can still say I'm somehow obeying the Bible. James and James 2, for those of you that were at the picnic, a few of you were at the picnic, James uh, talks about the idea of faith and works. And he says, if you, realizing that your brother has a need, recognizing he has the need, look at him and say, go be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give him what he needs, you have no faith. You're not living it, right? The idea being that if I look at someone and, and they say, I'm, I, I, I have a, a, a genuine need and they're a brother in Christ, and I look at them and I've got the money to meet their need, but I look at them and I say, wow, I, I'm going to pray for you. I really hope that, you'll, that, that, that someone will come along to meet your need. Go and, and the Lord bless you, but I don't meet their need. What? How do I explain that? Well, I'm going to pray for him. Well, this, well, that. Well, what you are doing is you're buffering yourself against the Bible. You're buffering yourself against what the Bible says. And again, we're all guilty of this at times in our lives. But the fact of the matter is, if, we, if God has intended to communicate, and if what God has said is true, then whether or not we believe it, whether or not we find great creative ways, and there are millions of pages today written by scholars, biblical scholars all around the world justifying why you don't need to obey what the Bible has to say. And if we spend our life this way, it's not going to change the fact that there's coming a day when we stand before God and He's not going to hold us accountable to what Joe Schmo, pastor, scholar said about the Bible. He's going to hold us accountable for what He has taught us, for what He has written, and for what He has plainly said in His Word. Which is why it behooves us to understand it properly. And that's what this, these classes have all been about. It's not my desire to stand up here and tell you what Baptists think about the Bible. Or what I think about the Bible. It's my desire to open the Bible, to tell you what the Bible says, and say, this is what the Bible says. Now, are we going to believe it, or are we not going to believe it? And so then you go to someone else, and you say, this is what... Uh, Pastor Wickler says the Bible says, and they say, no, 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 the Bible doesn't say that, it says this. He's, he's misinterpreting that. Well, this is why we do this one. To get down to, where am I coming from? Am I misinterpreting the Bible when I'm telling you the things that I'm telling you? Or am I not? So, 
we go through this process. And where we're going to start this process as it relates to actually interpreting the Bible is the norms of language. Before I get into the norms of language, thoughts or questions? The norms of language. Your first point there, language is designed to communicate. If it doesn't communicate, it fails at its purpose. If language doesn't communicate, then it fails at its purpose. There's no point in us having this language with all of these rules unless we are able to communicate one with another. This is what language is for. The next point, in order to function, society must agree. There's your fill-in. Society must agree upon standard meaning of words, then must agree to apply the standard meaning of these words to each communication. So as I'm talking with my wife, uh, one of the things that my wife and I had a little trouble with when we moved into the house is we had we each had a different understanding of what the back door in our house is. We have doors on all four sides of our house, uh, on all four walls. We have a, a door that gets into our house. And so my wife would say, such and such is by the back door. And I would go to the back door, and it was not anywhere near there. And I'd go back and I'd say, I didn't find it by the back door. And my wife would say, well, it's right there by the back door. I'd say, of course, I'm really bad at, uh, at noticing things, so I'm going to go look again. So I go and I look everywhere. I'm, uh, I can't find the thing. Honey, it's not by the back door. She says, well, I'll go get it for you. And she goes to the side door, which is the back door to her. And, and, and she gets it. There it is. It's sitting right there because it's by the side door. And I look at her and I say, how is that the back door to our house when it's not at the back of our house? And she says, well, it seems to me to be the back of the house. And oh, well, that's the side of the house. And so we had a miscommunication. If we're not using our words, if we're not defining them the same way, then, then we can't get anything done, right? We have to define our words the same way. And I have to assume in language that we're defining things the same way. Uh, this came up again in the Kavanaugh hearings, right? Uh, he wrote, writ, written down some, some unique and, and totally teenage boy words in his yearbook, right? Uh, and, and there were questions about what those words meant. And one person says these words are sexually, sexual assault words. And the other person says these words are stupid teenage boy drinking game words, right? And if we cannot come to a consensus about what these words mean, then we can't communicate one with another. And this is common, and this is, this is how language works. So, let's, let's follow a logical progression here. If God wants to communicate to us, and he's going to use language to do it, then we have to assume that God is going to use language the way it's designed, right? That he is not going to try to uh, um, uh, uh, confuse us by using words in a manner that is not consistent with how words are used. Instead, he's going to use words in a manner that is consistent with how words are used so that we can understand the words that he is, is putting down through these various writers. So we assume in the norms of language that in order for a society to function, we must agree upon standard meanings of words. The, the next point there, your next fill-in, the, meaning, the meanings of words and the norms of language change over time. The meanings of words and the norms of language change over time. Uh, we, we saw this in the hearing, right? Uh, he, he said these words meant one thing, now they mean something different. Can, they, can, can both of those be true? Yes. Have words changed over time? Absolutely. The word Google is in the dictionary now, and it doesn't mean uh, one with 100 zeros after it. 
right? It means a search engine or to search for something. Google it, right? That word has dramatically changed in meaning over the last decade. Uh, the word cool. If, if uh, you say something is cool, uh, that word doesn't mean just what it used to mean. Uh, the word cool used to mean cold or, and it still does mean that, right? But it also has another meaning now. And that other meaning is neat, exciting, whatever, words that we already have plenty of other words for, but somehow we've imposed new meanings on old words. Uh, let me see, I don't know if I gave it to you. I did, so we'll get there in just a moment. So meanings of words and the norms of language change over time. The way a language once functioned isn't always the way that language is going to function. So then, if God wrote a book 2,000 years ago, do I open up, of course that book has been translated, so I'm, I'm, I'm skipping a few steps here, but do I open up that book? Let me, let me put it to you this way. So it was written in a, a, a form of Greek, a dialect of Greek called Koine or Common Greek. Do I go to a Greek speaker in Greece today, in 2018, 2,000 years later, have him read the ancient Greek from 2,000 years ago and expect that the way he understands it is the way it was intended to be understood 2,000 years ago? Absolutely not. Let's bring it up to a new example. Judge Kavanaugh is what is called a originalist, right? And the, the idea of an originalist as it relates to the Constitution and as it relates to jurisprudence is that he is going to submit his rulings to what the Constitution meant when it was written, right? That was a long time ago now. But he is going to take the time to understand what they meant when they wrote it at that time and then impose their meaning on today. Whereas the other side of the spectrum, they are those that believe the Constitution is what's called a living document. That it has to conform to our meanings today and that we need to impose our meanings, our society, our culture upon the meaning of the text. Which is how somehow, uh, in Roe vs. Wade, they, they found the constitutional right of abortion in the Constitution. I, I don't know how they did that. Uh, except that what they did is they said the Constitution is a living document, and so we need to update uh, our, our understanding of what it means to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness uh, from the Declaration of Independence, or what it means to understand uh, um, the, the basic freedoms that we hold dear, and we need to update it to include a woman's reproductive rights. That's what you do when you create a, when, when, when you make the Constitution a living document, right? So there are two different ways of, of understanding the norms of language. Because we know that the meanings of words change, and language change over time, here's your next point, if we want to understand an old document, we must first assume the author intended to communicate. We must first assume the author intended to communicate. And if we assume this, then we will, and here's your next fill-in, determine what the words meant at the time of writing. At the time of writing. It doesn't matter what I think the words mean today. It matters what they thought the words meant then if we want to understand what they meant when they wrote it some 2,000 years ago. Right? I can't say that, that um, 
So, so if I'm writing a document today, if I'm writing a letter to my wife and I say it is raining cats and dogs today, and in 500 years of, of linguistic development, that idiom is now out of the language. And so when they read it's raining cats and dogs, they literally think cats and dogs are falling from the heavens and they're wondering what divine thing is happening here that cats and dogs are falling from the heavens. Do, it, it, would it be good scholarship for them just to assume that because that idiom is not in their language that I literally meant that cats and dogs are falling from the heavens? Or would it behoove them to do a little research and to find out that the idiom raining cats and dogs mean that there's a ton of rain? If, I, if they actually want to know what I was telling my wife, then they would care enough to go back and figure out what I meant at the time of writing, right? If I actually want to submit myself to or to understand communication, then I have to understand the language at the time it was used. Second point on the next page there. Uh, if we assume this, then we will, the first point was determine what the words meant at the time of writing. Second, determine the context of those words at the time of writing. Context is your next villain. Determine the context of those words at the time of writing. Once again, I understand the time period in which they're written. Um, and, and I uh, understand the, the norms, the culture of the day. Uh, there's a lot of people that are tearing down uh, monuments of Confederate war heroes. They're tearing down the monuments. They even want to tear down the monuments of men such as Jefferson and Washington because they were slave owners, right? And because they were slave owners, they are morally reprehensible people. Well, when we go back to the time and we understand the context within which they operated, they were operating within the norms of their time. Now, does that mean that slavery was right? No, it does not. But does that mean that these were morally egregious men for owning slaves at a time where slave ownership was a norm? Well, maybe not. Maybe when they wrote that all men are created, when Thomas Jefferson wrote all men are created equal, maybe he did not necessarily identify the deepest conflict between that concept and the fact that he was also a slave owner. And we can understand that from the context of the day. Whereas today, most certainly, he would not understand things the same way within our, our modern context. And I give you a, a clip here from C.S. Lewis and his book, Mere Christianity. If you've never read that book... Um, Gentlemen? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's from the preface, so it's like right at the beginning. It was actually technically from another essay that he wrote and a lot of his essays and stuff, he, he C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity is a is a compilation of of radio programs that he gave to defend this, the basics of the faith uh, at a time when uh, Britain was really, their, their young people were leaving the faith en masse. And so he was defending what, what's called Mere Christianity, and it was compiled into this general idea. And, and, and C.S. Lewis contemplates the importance of the meaning of words, and he's actually talking about the meaning of the word Christian. If you've noticed today, the word Christian doesn't mean anything anymore. Like, like you can be, you can call yourself a Christian, but not actually be anything like Christ, right? And C.S. Lewis was at this time in the in in this day in his day was talking about how this was happening, and this is what he says. I'm going to just go ahead and read the whole thing. Far deeper objections may be felt and have been expressed against my use of the word Christian 
to mean one who accepts the common doctrines of Christianity. People ask, who are you to lay down who is and who is not a Christian? Or may not many a man who cannot believe these doctrines be far more truly a Christian, far closer to the spirit of Christ than some who do? Now this objection is in one sense very right, very charitable, very spiritual, very sensitive. It has every available quality except that of being useful. We simply cannot, without disaster, use language as these objectors want us to use it. I will try to make this clear by the history of another and very much less important word. The word gentleman originally meant something recognizable, one who had a coat of arms and some landed property. When you call someone a gentleman, you are not paying him a compliment, but merely stating a fact. If you said he was not a gentleman, you were not insulting him, but giving information. There was not a contradiction in saying that John was a liar and a gentleman, any more than there is now in saying that James is a fool and an M.A. But then there came people who said, so rightly, charitably, spiritually, sensitively, so anything but usefully. Are you seeing the difference between subjective and objective truth here? Between emotion and fact? Anything but usefully. Ah, but surely the important thing about a gentleman is not the coat of arms and the land, but the behavior. Surely he, I'm sorry for the typo there, he is the true gentleman who behaves as a gentleman should. Surely in that sense, Edward is far more truly a gentleman than John. They meant well. To be honorable and courteous and brave is of course far better, a far better thing to have than a coat of arms. But it is not the same thing. Worse still, it is not a thing everyone will agree about. To call a man a gentleman is this new, in this new refined sense, becomes a fact, in fact, excuse me, not a way of giving information about him, but a way of praising him. To deny that he is a gentleman becomes simply a way of insulting him. When a word ceases to be a term of description and becomes merely a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object, it only tells you about the speaker's attitude to that object. A nice meal only means a meal the speaker likes. A gentleman, once it has been spiritualized and refined out of its old course, objective sense, means hardly more than a man who the speaker likes. As a result, gentleman is now a useless word. We had lots of terms of approval already, so it was not needed for that use. On the other hand, if anyone, say in a historical work, wants to use it in its old sense, he cannot do so without explanations. It has been spoiled for that purpose. Now, if once we allow people to start spiritualizing and refining, or as they might say, deepening the sense of the word Christian, it too will speedily become a useless word, which it has become. In the first place, Christians themselves will never be able to apply it to anyone. It is not for us to say who in the deepest sense is or is not close to the Spirit of Christ. We do not see into men's hearts. We cannot judge and are indeed forbidden to judge. It would be wicked arrogance for us to say that a man is or is not a Christian in this refined sense. And obviously a word which we can never apply is not going to be a very useful word. As for the unbeliever, they will no doubt cheerfully use this word in the refined sense. It will become in their mouth simply as a term of praise. In calling anyone a Christian, they will mean that they will think him a good man. But that way of using the word will be of no enrichment of the language, for we already have the word 
good. Meanwhile, the word Christian will have been spoiled for any really useful purpose it might have served. Did you understand that argument? This is the exact thing that we're talking about. If words don't mean anything anymore, if, if, if I cannot take a word and use it objectively, right? The word rape now has no definition in our culture. Rape can mean a, a man or a woman has regrets the next day in our culture. There is no objective sense in which that word can be understood. There is no objective sense of the concept of hate anymore. Hate can mean you say something that I don't like. That's hate now. There's no objective definition of the word. And when we start to detach words from objective meaning, we get everything gets messy. And as he mentioned here, if somebody wants to write a work about the gentleman of a time, when a gentleman meant that you have a landed property and a coat of arms. Now, if somebody were to write a book and talk about a gentleman, they'd have to define the term. Because in our age, a gentleman is a good man. Well, why not just call him a good man then and save the word gentleman for what it actually means instead of us having to redefine terms all the time. So now I can't call myself a Christian and expect that anybody will understand what I mean by that. I, I can call myself a born-again, spirit-and-dwelled, um, uh, Bible-believing Christian, and now I'm starting to get to a place where some people might understand what I mean, but I'm having to add adjective after adjective after adjective to try and define what I am because the word Christian has now, it just, it doesn't matter anymore. Any, anyone's a Christian as long as they do things that we might interpret to be things that we like, right? So this is the importance of language. This is why the norms of language matter. And as we read the Bible, we need to understand that language means something. This is why when I study my King James, of course, my King James was written uh, originally in 1611, and, and this edition is a 1769 edition. Uh, just about every King James Bible out there is a 1769 edition. The, the, the 1611 edition is, is unreadable because it's in Old English. Um, but the 1769 was updated. But if I want to understand what the words mean in, um, in this Bible, I'm not going to go to the Webster's 2018 dictionary to understand what the word licentious means or lascivious means. I'm going to go to the Webster's 1828 dictionary, which was a dictionary that was effectively keyed into this Bible so that when, when I open up this Bible and then I look at the Webster's 1828 dictionary, I'm getting what the King James translators meant, or at least what it meant in 1769, 1828, when those words were written so that I can understand what the Bible is saying to me. And this is, this is the framework that we have to approach the Bible with. That we believe God wanted to communicate, and if we believe God wanted to communicate, now this goes farther back. I have to, if, if I go to the Greek and to the Hebrew, which is something that I can do and, and that scholars do, what is the mindset of the scholar that you're trusting? Does he believe that the Bible is a living document? That it needs to be changed to meet the culture of this day? that he is going to translate the Bible in such a way that it's going to become relevant for today. Uh, the NIV has their, um, um, what's it called, their gender-neutral Bible, where they get rid of all the, the, the he's because it's, it's patriotic and misogynistic to call God a man, right? So we've got to get rid of that. We've got to make the Bible gender-neutral. 
so that we don't offend people. These are people that believe that the Bible is a living document that, that, that can be and needs to be updated and that can be changed at a whim to reflect the culture of the day. And if you believe that, then all of a sudden this Bible becomes meaningless because it's just going to reflect me. Instead of me looking in the Bible like a mirror and seeing myself for who I am, I look at the Bible and, and I see myself for who I think I want to be. And then the Bible becomes meaningless. Then the, the, the effort of God to communicate himself to mankind has been destroyed by, by man's desire to twist and manipulate the scriptures to his advantage. Thoughts or questions, additions to this concept? When did you say your King James Bible was? 1769. Yeah, that's when, that's when it was updated to reflect the new elements of, of English and got away from all of the crazy old English stuff that, you know, <coughs> very different from, from 100 years later, 150. Right, yeah, the S's look like F's and the, the B's and the N's were all, I mean, it, 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 you'd, you'd literally have to, if, if you opened up 1611, which they were selling them in 2011, right, that's the 400th anniversary editions, if you, if you ever got into a bookstore and actually opened one of those things up, unintelligible, you literally have to train yourself to read it, even though it's, they're both English, because uh, it's just a different, it was a different language back then. Other thoughts or questions about this stuff about language? Okay. Um, next page, page eight. I'm going to talk about three different terms here, meaning, implications, and significance. When we interpret the Bible, that we, we, are going to, we interpret the Bible all, along three stages. The first thing that we do is we determine the meaning. And the meaning, as we define it, is the thoughts ideas that you fill in, the thoughts, ideas, patterns, or understandings which the author willed to convey by the words he used. In other words, what did the author actually want to communicate to me when he wrote this? That's the first step. The next thing that we do is then we go to the implications of the text. Those elements of a text's meaning, which were not explicitly stated, but which are consistent with the author's meaning and bound by that meaning. And I, I'm, I'll, uh, I'll, um, show, I'll, I'll explain how this works through some various examples um, in, in, in a few moments. So the meaning is the actual thoughts, ideas, patterns, understandings, which the author will. This is what he, he desired to communicate when he wrote it. I want to figure that out. The next thing I want to figure out are the implications. How, how can I take what, what he wrote in that day and in that time to that audience and broaden them to, to, to uh, match today's culture? This is not twist them, but this is broadening them. And I'll, I'll show you how to do that again. And then the third is significance. The significance, uh, these are the specifics of how a reader responds to or applies the meaning of the text. The, the specifics of how a reader responds to or applies the meaning of the text. And this is where that question, what does this mean to you, comes in. So we're reading the Bible. And as we read, or, or, or let's, let's, uh, let's say, well, we're reading the Bible and we read that verse, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Well, the first thing that we do is we take it in context. Paul is talking about suffering. 
Paul is talking about being able to suffer. Then we broaden it to the implications of the text. What other areas of, of, of life, what other areas of suffering, what other areas of disappointment other than just material lack, which is what Paul was saying, can I, can I apply this concept that I can be content and joyful in the midst? Maybe health difficulties. That would be consistent, right? With the idea of I can go through difficulties and I can, I, I can go through good times with, while still maintaining my joy and my delight. So um, not, just, not just lacking materially, which is what Paul directly meant, but lacking perhaps in health, and I can still be joyful, and I can still be content. Um, maybe lacking in full understanding of a situation. Maybe lacking in, in um, uh, uh, vengeance, uh, that someone has done me wrong, and, I, and I've not been able to see justice done. But even though justice hasn't been done, I can still be content. These are all consistent implications. And then maybe as I say those things, there is some significance to you. Maybe you're thinking about some particular health uh, problem that, that you're going through or that a loved one is going through. And God is saying, you can be content in that through me. And that is how it applies to you. That is the significance to you. And that's not going to be how, how it's going to be significant to me. It's going to be significant to you in that way. And so we all have ways that, that the text and the meaning of God's word hits us individually and this is the significance. This is where it comes down to how does this apply to me? There are people every week that sit under my preaching and some people walk away uh, having really been impacted and other people, oh, that message wasn't as, as pertinent to them. Maybe the next week's will impact them. There are some people that walk away and as I was preaching the text and I gave the point of the text, they walk away saying, I needed that. And then I have people come up to me and say, hey, pastor, when you were preaching on such and such, I learned this. And I didn't even talk about that, right? But the Holy Spirit took the word of God and, and applied it to them. And it was a, a perfectly good application of it and applied it to them in, in, in a way that I didn't expect. All of that's okay. But if we say, well, that's the end all be all. If, if what it means to me is it, and I don't have to go back to what did it mean at the day it was written, then I'm going to misinterpret the Bible. And then I'm going to misinterpret the Bible. So at this point, a screen would be super duper helpful. Um, uh, we've got 15 minutes left. I might... Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, by the time you did, we, I, if, if, if everyone wants to go over a few minutes, we could, we could perhaps do that. You just, be, you just print the slides on the PowerPoint. Um, I started. booked it till not. Okay. The invite. Starting at slide 51 and going to slide uh, um, 59, 51 to 59. Just print the actual slides. And while we're, while we're waiting on that, let's go ahead and skip ahead a little bit to other important considerations. Um, I'm going to give you a bunch of examples of what we just talked about, but let's talk about, and this is just the next page for you. Um, I guess I should have just thrown, thrown all this stuff in the notes, but um, other important considerations. Um, the other things that we do need to, to talk about here are the types of literature. So when we talk about a, a person desiring to communicate that doesn't always mean that 
things are clear cut. So if I'm writing a letter to my wife, a, a letter of instruction, I am going to be as down the line, obvious, um, clear as I can be. But if I read poetry, if I'm reading a little bit of Lord Byron, Edgar Allan Poe, they, they, they approach communication a little bit differently, don't they? They couch what they're trying to say in imagery, in flowery language. They, they take what they're trying to say and they use uh, artistic mediums with which to communicate. And the Bible does this too. So as I've talked about all of these things, we can't just outright say every, every single page of the Bible uh, I am going to interpret as literally as, I, as, as it can possibly be. Because then you get to the Psalms and the Psalms are poetry. And if I interpret them, if I interpret the poetry literally, I'm going to find myself in a really strange place, right? Uh, if, if I try to uh, 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 interpret, I'm, I'm going through a series right now in my church on, on the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. If I try to interpret the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ 100% literally, as he's seeing visions of, of, of crazy things, I'm going to get myself in a weird spot because that's not how they were meant to be interpreted. So uh, on your points there, uh, other important considerations, the first one there is types of literature. Types of literature. We don't interpret poetry the same way as narrative or prophecy. We acknowledge the existence of some things. Uh, uh, we acknowledge the existence of hyperbole, which is, which is exaggeration, uh, of allegory, of metaphor, of sarcasm, of irony. Uh, I could add to that all sorts of other things, idiom. So when Jesus says it is easier for uh, the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, uh, Jesus was using an idiomatic statement there, right? He wasn't, and no one was trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. He was using an idiomatic statement to make a point, right? The, um, if, if any man offend the little ones, it's better that a millstone be hung around his neck and he be tossed into the sea. Uh, Jesus was, was using exaggeration to make a point. Now, I... I, I don't know if it wouldn't be all that bad thing to have pedophiles have a millstone talk turn around the neck and then thrown in the midst of the sea. But, but that being said, Jesus was using a, a, a hyperbole, an exaggeration to make a point. That's allowed. But that means that we have to go back to their culture, their language, and understand the way that they wrote, understand their, their, their speech and their language. Uh, while there are some ambiguities as it relates to poetry, generally speaking, you can, uh, our culture as a whole can understand what poets are trying to say, generally speaking. Sometimes it gets a little ambiguous, but we can take the language, we can couch that language in a context, and we can come to a conclusion as to what was attempting to be said there. So we, we don't ignore that, that that stuff actually happens. We don't ignore that there can be these things. And in, in fact, in scripture, there are a lot of these things. There is a lot of poetry. There, are, there is flower language. But this is where we come to, dis, thank you, discerning the genres of literature. So if something is narrative, then I'm going to take it as if a historical narrative, I'm going to take it as if it's true. I'm going to interpret the language directly. 
If it is poetry, then I'm going to interpret it slightly differently, flowery language, if you will. If it is prophecy, then I'm going to approach it differently. And uh, th this, is, this is not outside of the norms of language, right? It just means that we have to establish the boundaries of the norms of language before we step into it. So there is some disagreement here. There are some people that will say Genesis chapter 1 is poetry. It is not narrative. And if that's the case, then maybe we don't have to believe in six literal days of creation, right? We can say it's flowery language. It's metaphorical. However, when you read the narratives of the Bible, Genesis 1 is written in the same tone as the other narratives, as if it's history. It's written as historical narrative. So then there goes that argument. But if it were written in a poetic fashion, well, then we'd have reason to believe that it was not literal in the sense of uh, as it is. And, and, of course, there's arguments about that. Uh, people on both ends, that's where biblical scholarship comes in and muddies all of our waters for us. I, I give you, uh, going back here, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to other important considerations in a moment. Um, I, I, I give you kind of a, a, a visual... Um, a visual guide here to help you understand significant meaning, implication, and significance. So uh, what we see here within this square is what we'll call the pattern of meaning. That when you read a text of the Bible, there are, are, are various shades of meaning that you, can, that you can pull from it, but they all are consistent with the meaning of the text. And while there are various things that we can say are all consistent with the text, there are certain things that we know are absolutely not consistent. This blue square here, well, it's still a square, but it doesn't match the fact that we're dealing with a bunch of shades of red, right? This is not consistent. This is like Sesame Street stuff, right? One of these things is not like the other, right? So the blue square is not consistent with this. If we were trying to match what is consistent, that would not work because it's blue and the rest of these are red. The, the, the red circle would not fit, right? It's, it's red, so we've got that part right, but it's a circle. It does not fit within the pattern of meaning, of willed meaning. And then we have the green triangle, which, which matches on no counts. Those are all outside of the pattern of meaning. So let's walk through a couple of examples here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And be not drunk with wine, where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So we have this verse, and this is a really helpful example to us. The direct meaning of the text. Don't get drunk on wine, be filled with the Spirit, right? It's quite plain. Don't get drunk on wine, be filled with the Spirit of God. So that's the direct meaning. That is the, 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 the straight up, as clear as you can get, this is what Paul said. Well, now we go to all of the different shades of what that could mean. Don't allow anything into your body which will override the Spirit's capacity to control you. And this is more generally what Paul is saying here. That whether it's alcohol, or whether it's a drug, or whether it's anything else, if it enters into your body and overrides the capacity of the Spirit of God to control you, then it is something that is not appropriate for you to be putting into your body. And that is what we would call the pattern of meaning. Now, as we then take that pattern of meaning and work it out to its valid implications... Not just wine. I mean, if, if, if we were to take this as literally as we could, okay, I can't get drunk on wine, but let's go get the bourbon then, right? Let's go get the scotch. Let's go get the vodka because I can't get drunk on wine, 
but I have to be filled with the Spirit. But we know that that's not just what's being said there because of that point, but be filled with the Spirit. So if I can't, if, if getting drunk on wine is going to incapacitate my capacity to have the Spirit of God working through me, then all of the other alcoholic beverages are going to do the same thing if I get drunk on them as well as mind-altering drugs. If, if it is a drug that is entering my body that is incapacitating the ability of my body, my mind to rationally submit itself to the Spirit of God, and so to function properly within the power of the Spirit of God, then it is a, it, it, it's, it's valid, it's a valid implication to say that all of those things are a part of this, that you should not do them. This is, this is a valid interpretation. What's invalid? Well, it is invalid to use this verse to say that you can't drink any alcohol at all or to never have any mind-altering drug. It's invalid to say that from this verse. Now, we might be able to go to Proverbs and make a tremendous case for that, and I think we can. But from this verse, it cannot be said explicitly, Paul is saying no alcohol at all. Paul is saying no, no, no allowing anything into your body uh, that, that can at all alter your state of consciousness. That's not what this verse is saying. That would be a bad interpretation of this verse. Do you understand how that would fall outside of the pattern of meaning that Paul has, has established? Wine was the drink of the day. That's why he's using wine. But what he's doing is he's contrasting the inebriation of alcohol with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are mutually exclusive. You can't both be inebriated and be living in the power of the Spirit. The, I can't hear the Spirit of God if I am not able to use my reason and function properly, right? I cannot be led by the Spirit. Um, one of the fruits of the Spirit, in fact, is temperance, self-control, right? So I can't have that and simultaneously be under control of some substance, under control of it. So those are, those, that would be an invalid implication. The final one here is the significance. What's the significance to you? I can't, I, I can't make that. You know where the line is. Now, for some of us in here, that means we don't touch it at all. Because either we can't touch, you know, Greg has said before, he doesn't do anything halfway, right? Full book. Right? So, so when he reads, be not drunk with wine, wherein is that excess, but be filled with the Spirit, if, 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 there is an, if there's a possibility for excess, and Greg is who he is, then he should not touch alcohol, because he'll probably use it to excess. And he doesn't want to do that, so he's not going to get anywhere near it. Whereas there's other people who can drink alcohol without getting drunk. Does this verse expl explicitly prohibit them from doing that? No, it does not. Again, could we go to Proverbs and make some good arguments? I think we could. But this is not one of the verses that would give us that explicit argument. This is how we interpret the Bible. This is how we do it properly. This is how we, we, we recognize meaning the pattern of meaning, the implications, and then the significance to me or to you or to anyone else. Questions on that? That example, I've got one more here. I think I actually might have two more. Let's see. Yeah, I do have two more here. Um, um, I don't have this up on. So let me read it. Uh, let me go to Acts chapter 10, and I'm going to read you a little bit of, of, the, of the scriptures here. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 10, Peter receives a vision. It's, it's often called the vision of the sheets. 
or the vision of the, of the unclean, uh, unclean animals. And then he interprets it. So in Acts chapter 9, the Bible says, uh, Acts chapter 10, excuse me, verse 9, the Bible says this. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up upon a housetop to pray about the sixth hour, and he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him. And it had, and as it had been a great sheet, knit at the four corners and let down to earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice or three times. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. And so we have this thing that happened, right? This this vessel comes down, a sheep comes out from it, and all of these, these animals come out. And, and a voice from heaven says, kill these things and eat these things. And this becomes a problem to Peter because Peter is a Jew. And all of these things that are being presented before him are not kosher. They are not clean animals. And the voice from heaven says, kill these things and eat these things. And Peter says, I can't eat these things. These are not clean. And God says, if I have called it clean, don't you dare call it unclean. If I have cleansed it, don't say it's not clean. So, now Peter, the Bible says um, in verse uh, 17, Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius, we skipped that part, but there had been some men sent from a Gentile um, to come to Peter, had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. So now Peter is thinking, what does this mean? Now, the most basic, direct meaning of this vision is that God is allowing Peter and the Jews in Christ, those who are Christians, to eat meat that was forbidden under the Mosaic law. That under Christ, the the Dietary expectations of the Mosaic Law, praise God, were invalidated, right? So now we can eat pork, which is just a, 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 a tremendous blessing, right? Uh, and, and we can eat all of the other things that are, are not allowed to be eaten uh, within the Jewish customs, the Mosaic Law. That's the most direct meaning. But Peter's going to recognize another meaning here as, as it relates to Cornelius. Uh, uh, the, the spirit, in verse 20, Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have uh, sent them. Yeah, there we are. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, he was a Roman, he was a centurion, he was a soldier, a just man and one that feareth God and of good report among all the nation of the Jews was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear the word, hear words of thee. Then called he them in and lodged them and on the morrow Peter went away with them and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea and Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also, uh, also am a man. 
And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, Ye know how that it is un an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Do you see what happened there? Peter, he sees this vision, and in this vision it directly says, you can eat meats that were before unclean. But then God also said in this vision, what I have called clean, don't call unclean. Now here comes Cornelius and his entourage, and Cornelius is a Gentile, which means according to Jewish custom, he is un ceremonially unclean. The Jews cannot go into their house, the Jews cannot do so because they defile themselves ceremonially. And Peter walks into the house, and he says this, I just had a vision, and in this vision, by implication, God just told me that no people group is inherently unclean, just as no meat is inherently unclean. That just as I, we had called all of these meats unclean, and in fact, God says, don't call it unclean if I've called it clean, so too there is no people group anymore that is inherently unclean that we cannot have interaction with anymore. This was a valid implication that Peter made of the vision which God had given to him. What would be an invalid implication? Well, because God doesn't care about clean or unclean meats anymore, or because God doesn't call a people group inherently clean or unclean, that means that God doesn't care about sin anymore. That would not be what God was saying. Right? It would not be what God was saying that God says, I just don't really care about anything. I'm open to everything now. Let's just all be, let's just all be happy and, 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 and it's all good now. No, that, that wasn't what God was saying. That would be an invalid implication here. If you ever hear a pastor preach this message, uh, preach this passage and say, so that means that nothing matters anymore in, in, in probably more flowery language, don't believe him. That's an invalid implication. That does not fit into the pattern of meaning of what Peter saw and what he interpreted on that day. Now then, the last thing we do is we have a significance. The significance, of course, to Cornelius was that he could be saved too. And that's what you see if you read the passage. Gentiles could be saved as well. The significance to Christians, well, we don't have to be kosher. And we see this in Colossians chapter 3 as well, that no man should judge you in the eating of meat or in the, or in the observance of a, of a holiday or in the observance of a particular day of the week, that these are not things that God has commanded or, or demanded of us. <coughs> and then the final one here um, is from 1 Corinthians 9, uh, which is uh, where... Paul is quoting a passage from Deuteronomy, and um, then he's giving the significance of it. Let me go ahead and read that one. It's just a few verses. It's not as long. So I'll read this one, and we'll finish up with this pattern of meaning this week and pick up here uh, in the text next week. First Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 12. Paul says this, Who goeth a warfare? Who goes to war anytime in his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or say not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope. That he that 
thresheth in hope should be a partaker of his hope. We'll explain what this means in a minute. So what Paul is saying here directly is that if you labor, you have the right to, to, to enjoy the fruit of your labor. That if I spend my time planting a garden, it would be a, a terrible thing if I plant a garden, if I cultivate the garden, if I put the money into the garden, if I put the time into the garden, and then somebody else comes and harvests my garden and walks away with it. That would be wrong. That would be an egregious offense. Because I am the one that put the work into the garden. I have the right to eat of the fruit of the garden. You work. You punch a clock. You don't punch a clock, however it works. But you have the right to benefit from your labor. You have the right to get the paycheck for the labor that you have put in. Uh, uh, Greg, Greg has mentioned before, uh, I came in at the end of a phone call with some, presumably some prospective um, uh, client. And, and he said, I wish that they would understand that I need to make a profit too. Right? That the person who produces something has the right to profit from that production. He has the right to earn something off of what he's doing. That is, that is his right. The idea that everything has to be sold at cost is an egregious offense to the principles, to, to the, the, the grander principles of God's design because I have the right to benefit from that. So the, the, what he quotes here is that the ox has the right, to, the, the, in the law of Moses, the principle was this, don't muzzle the ox when he's treading the corn. When he's plowing down the corn, don't muzzle him so he can't eat of the corn. He's plowing the corn. You give him the right to eat of what he's plowing. You give him the right to eat of, of what, he's, what, what he's helping you produce. That's the principle here. Um, and, and Paul says, was, was this given just for the oxen? Or was, it, was there something bigger going on here? The direct meaning is don't muzzle the ox. That's, the, that's without a question, the direct meaning. They were a farm culture. They, they, they farm. Don't muzzle the ox. The implication is, or the, the, excuse me, the pattern of meaning is that when someone or something labors within a context, they have to, the right to benefit from the labor of that context. If you put in the time and the effort into something, then you have the right to benefit from it. The implication, and this is what where Paul goes to next. He says this. He says, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partaker of this power over you, are, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. So he says this. He says, If, if the minister of the gospel spends his time and his effort and his labor on spiritual things, Right, that, that the minister of the gospel is putting all of his time into preaching the word of God and into prayer. Does he not also have the right to benefit from his labors, to, to reap from his labors? Now, Paul says we didn't take advantage of that. Paul, actually, one of the things that he did generally by principle is he did not ask any money of anyone unto whom he ministered. And that's his right to do so. But he said he has the right to do it. And he has the right to do it because this is his labor in the Lord. And he says, if, if, if this is the labor that the Lord has called a person unto, then I have the right to. So the valid implication of this that Paul is drawing out here, based upon the pattern of meaning, is that spiritual teachers have the right to live materially off the fruit of their spiritual labors. What would be an invalid implication? Simply because I claim to have some spiritual authority, that means you have to give me money or you have to trust me. Right? The idea that you don't know me, but I, I say I'm a pastor, so you have to give me money. 
or you don't know me, but I say I'm a pastor, so so uh, I, I get to live off of you. No. If you labor, and I see you laboring in the spirit, and 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 you are you are laboring, then sure you have the right to live off of those labors. But if you're just going to be a bum who claims to be a man of God, don't 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 expect that would be an invalid implication that that pastors have the right to money. No, we don't. We don't have the right to money. We don't have the right to material possessions. We, we, we have to labor and to live off the fruit of our labor just like anyone else. And then finally, uh, I, I guess I don't have a significance to that one. Or let me just check if maybe we, if we didn't just get the last slide. But no, I didn't give a, a significance. So the significance to each person, of course, is going to be different there. Maybe uh, uh, for, for our, our businessmen, our business owners, they take this passage and say, I have the right to, to earn money from my, my contracts. Uh, for the rest of us, I have the right to earn a paycheck when I when I put in the time. Sir? Just maybe to go back under the old USSR. The farmers, the Russian farmers, you know, they all had all their five-year plans, money or something. The farmers didn't have a right to no. They only had, no matter how much they produced, they only got this much for their family. Yep. So then Russia did not produce it enough, so then they came out and said, oh, okay, well, We'll let you have 10% of the, this land here, you wrote 10% of whatever. Yep. They produced, they outproduced the whole rest of the farming on their 10% of land that was theirs. Because it was theirs. That's they right. Use it, other, you know, it wasn't just all taken away and then they were given up. And, and this is, of course, the egregious offense of, of the, the ideology of communism and the ideology socialism. of socialism as it relates to these things. The egregious offense is that you take away that which a person earns, <coughs> labors to, and then you attempt to give them a little bit. Well, then what's going to happen? No one's going to labor. Because this guy can sit on the couch and I can work all day and you're going to give half of what I've earned to him. Well, then why should I work hard? And then next thing you know, no one's working and there's no production, right? That's very covered. Right, because they had to go out and glean from the field, which was a lot of work. Uh, if, if you're thinking of gleaning by hand and then threshing by hand, uh, the, 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 the man of wealth or the farmer, he, he is required by law in the, in Moses, in the book of uh, Law of Moses to leave the gleanings. And then if a man is hungry and he wants to put the work into it, he can go out and pick up those gleanings. And he has to pick it up by hand. He has to do that. He has to thresh it himself. But he can live if he'll work. And if he won't work, he can't say it's because there was not an opportunity because the gleanings are, are lying right there. And so that principle is a principle. And this is where we would interpret this principle and we'd say, now we can see a, a, a larger principle in the scriptures. And then this becomes a part of our worldview, right? Now we're looking at Capitalism, communism, socialism. We're looking at these ideological claims not through the lens of my empathy and my subjective truth. Well, I saw someone hungry once, so that means I, I have to make this guy give all his money to that guy because I saw someone hungry once. That is an emotional argument that breaks down. But if I can look through the lens of truth and say God has created a principle whereby if a man does not work, he should not eat. Whereby, though, that we who have enough 
if a man is willing to work, that we should help him uh, be able to sustain himself. Now we are seeing a biblical principle, and then we align our political, our social, and our ideological perspectives with what the Bible is teaching. Because we know the Bible is objective truth. And we trust it to be true. And God has communicated, and he's, he's communicated in a way that we can understand. This is, this is what we're doing here. This is the foundations of why we come to the conclusions we come to. This is, this is why those, those assumptions, those fundamental assumptions were made to begin with, trying to explain those. This is how we interpret the Bible in a way that is consistent with, with God's desire to communicate to us. And this is why when you have these Christian socialists and you have these Christian abortion advocates and you have these Christian uh, people who are advocating for these alternative lifestyles, uh, you can see a breakdown. Somewhere along the line, they decided that something else was more important than the Bible. Or they decided that the Bible was not objective truth. Or they decided that the way they're going to interpret the Bible is going to be outside of, of, of the norms of how, how we understand language to work. Because if they take the Bible and they read it at face value and they understand the norms of language and they, and they read it properly, they are going to come to the conclusion that, like it or not, God does not like these things. God cannot like these things. And if they don't come to that conclusion, then, then somewhere along the line they're either fooling themselves or they've just not interpreted well. So what, what I'm attempting to do to this week, and then of course as we get into next week, is equip you to interpret the Bible properly. So that when you're reading it, you will take it at face value. You'll understand some of these things so that you can approach it properly and not come to these same problematic conclusions. And, and the other thing is so that when you hear some pastor get up, and because he's got a 10,000 person congregation and, a, and, and, and all of that, he gets up and he spouts his words. You have enough, you're equipped enough to open the Bible and say, that's not what the Bible says. And I know how the Bible should be interpreted because I'm going to use the norms of language and I'm going to assume that God is true. And then you can not come to a, a place of crisis where you say, do I just not understand what the Bible's saying? You know, with the Da Vinci Code thing that came out several years ago, right? And, and um, uh, there's, there's been, uh, and then all, all of the things with uh, the blood moons and everything. Uh, am I just missing something in the Bible that I'm not seeing all of these things that other people are seeing? Uh, am I just missing something in the Bible when, when the, the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons come to my door and they say all these things? That, that, that uh, sound nothing like what, what I've ever read from the Bible? Am I just missing something? Well, if you're interpreting the Bible properly, most likely what's happening is they're adding something. They're, they're reading between some lines. They're looking for something that's not there. And they're imposing it. Now, I'm not saying we can't have our convictions about things like the blood moons or prophetic signs and wonders. Those things are, are perhaps within the realm, but but but... There's a lot here in black and white to work on without spending all of our time on the stuff that's between the lines.